Hello, friend. Thanks, as always, for being here. Happy to have Mark McGrath back on The Tully Show for a look back at another month's worth of new releases from 40 years and one month ago. You two... Prince, Queen, David Bowie. I mean, the amount of substantial, significant, historic music that came out every single month in 1981 blows my mind every single time I research one of these episodes. We'll get into that in a second. Real quick, happy holiday to you and yours. Want to hear some Thanksgiving podcasts? Sure you do. I did one pod on the history of Thanksgiving and another really fun music pod. I did my best to come up with a Thanksgiving music podcast. The Beatles versus Warrant. Morrissey versus some guy on Spotify called I Fuck the Turkey. In each of those aforementioned instances, you might be surprised to. I think the pretty clear winner is. Join me there for that and much, much more. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? <laughs> Coming to you live, on tape, on location in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, from my almost 10-year-old son's bedroom boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and three-time champion of Rock and Roll Jeopardy. Hello and welcome back, our dear friend, Mark McGrath. What is up, Michael Tully? Always a wonderful, warm introduction. I appreciate it very much. Always a joy to be here. The last time I spoke to you, we're talking uh, Too Fast for Love, the debut album from Motley Crue, and we both knew. It's so insane. I don't know how many albums I know for sure what year they came out, but I I know as sure as I know my... Well, I was going to say as sure as I know my children's birth dates, but I often have to take a second and make sure I'm straight on those. <laughs> I I, uh, I tagged you in in, in some. There's a lot of numbers. It's very confusing. Okay, I got a lot of shit going on. Uh, I, I tagged you in a tweet. Somebody um, um, mentioned that the initial, the self-released Motley Crue debut album came out in November of 1981. It is, of course, November of 2021. But you and I are um, are talk are one month behind in talking about the new releases from 1981, which is to say the entire musical world is about to turn on its axis with the release of, I don't know, 500 copies of, of a Motley Crue album that may be slightly more important to me and you than it is to the rest of the world. But that change is a common. But right now in, uh, in November of 1981, the world had no idea what Nikki Six, et cetera, had in store for them. But, you know, ironically, there's actually a reactionary uh, reaction to this record that's coming next month, mm-hmm. i.e. Yeah. Too Fast Love, because let's be honest, it started the, you know, it really kicked in the hair metal genre, which really dominated the late 80s, which opened the door for Nirvana and alternative music, which was reactionary, everything going on. So it had more like, it, it had so many, so much legs in terms of how much it influenced music and how we're still listening to it. Um, and it was, like you said, 500 copies on an independent label. No one would touch these guys with a 10,000-foot pole. And then they turned to be one of the biggest selling acts of the 80s, you know? 
maybe because they had only been together. I had a lot of things working against them. I spoke to the authors of that hair metal book, Nothing But a Good Time, who said that, you know, despite the, the success of Van Halen, all of the hair metal, metal has always been for the Heshers, for the shit kickers. The label guys are the cool guys who get the best coke. They were, when the skinny tie stuff started taking off, they were on board with the skinny tie stuff. So they, they wanted to do, they gave the skinny tie power pop bands every opportunity to succeed they made it as hard as possible for the 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 hair metal bands to to succeed but in the defense of the labels molly crew had only been around for six months when too fast for love came out so very that is uh in so many ways they set the template for hair metal that's one of the ways in which they also set the template for hair metal once you have a name and a logo you're pretty much ready to sign just to record your debut album. Don't worry about the songs. That's just details. Yeah, exactly. Well, this will take care of the peculiarities, peculiarities later. But, but you yeah. know, it's so funny. I think with Motley Crue, after punk rock and new wave, let's be honest, punk rock and new wave weren't riding this. Let's party and have fun thing. It was more like right. introspective. It was more, you know, it had more of an attitude. There's a lot of anger involved, certainly in the punk rock aspect. People were ready to party again. It's like after grunge, man, in the 90s. People were ready to party again. Whether it was boy bands, hip-hop, or bands like Smash Mouth and Sugar Ray, people were ready to party again. And Motley Crue, again, lit that fuse, which led to Poison, which led to, you know, all these medicine, these bands that just said, all we want to do is party. Like, there, yep. there, there is no, you know, the veneer is very, very thin here. We just want to party. Yeah, right. Rock and roll all night and and party every day. Yeah, there's Absolutely. no there's no subtext here, right? Absolutely. Well, we'll get we'll get to that and talk about that album at some length again next month. But for now, it is so I say it's October of 1981. We're talking about, and you know, we've touched on this before in the past. This is the fourth quarter. This is when the big bands, especially in the days when you were selling physical copies, were supposed to deliver product that could move millions of units and be underneath millions of metaphorical Christmas trees. And there's going to be some of that. But I think what you will see is the far more interesting, the far more durable stuff that comes out this month will be things that actually were not very successful when they came out. Sort of a flop fourth quarter for the big acts, but um, uh, the the ground underneath is, we say it every month, but it gets more and more true every month. You'll see some of the bands that we're going to be talking about. Some of the bands that would be not just the biggest bands of the 80s, the biggest bands of all time are still kind of finding their sea legs in 1981, but at the very top, uh, the surface of things in the, the popular music world, here's this thing, right? Deliver a greatest hits album. Sell sell some easy records, a bunch of hits everybody and their mom already knows, and stick on one new song so even the diehard fans have to buy this thing if they want to be completists, right? So now it is time for for Queen to release their greatest hits, and they go to record a handful of tunes in Switzerland, and who just happens to be across the, the hall recording the theme song to the movie cat people <laughs> mr davy jones <laughs> yeah exactly david bowie for i'm sorry i was being i was being that like super asshole tech uh, trivia guy mm-hmm. but it was, it was david bowie and my understanding tolly is that mm-hmm. they didn't really like i mean they got along but there was a little bit of a certainly healthy competition there you know what I mean? Yeah. between bowie and queen um and 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 when 
I don't know. You probably know the story better than I do. So if you want to tell the story about the song being recorded, I, I'll, I'll back off a little bit and I'll add. Well, you tell me what you know. All I think I know is that there were definitely some fader wars when it came time to mix the vocals between oh, Freddie Mercury and David Bowie. Definitely. De- definitely those things. But, you know, when, when they heard that Bowie was next door, Queen's next door, yeah, I, I believe there was someone who was a, a liaison between two bands said, you guys should do something together. You know, it'd be awesome and just, you know, take a second to do it. So the song came out very quickly and... Bowie and uh, Freddie were writing the song and they kept on trying to like outdo each other on their parts. And if you hear the song, it keeps building and building and building like that until it goes that big ending. Like, why can't we give ourselves one more chance? And then they're just both like really counterpointing each other and supporting each other. So I want that myth to be true, that they were really being competitive in the song, trying to outdo each other with each line, each verse. And then it just came together at the end with this, one of the all-time songs, Under Pressure, it, it moves me to that. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about how great that song is. And like you said, happened to be a throw-on new song under this greatest hits record, which arguably is my favorite Queen song, you know, uh, and also gave an Ice a career as well. So, you know. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, we all, everybody knows Under Pressure, but just for the record... And there's even some disagreement over who wrote the the iconic bass line. You, it's easy to assume John Deacon, the bass player in Queen, was responsible for that. For the longest time, it was attributed to David Bowie, oddly enough, although I think he later clarified that not too long before he died. Here's what I think is kind of interesting. Well, first of all, yes, it's a it's an amazing song. If you don't like that song, you don't like music. That's, That's just right. kind of all there is to it. That's right. I think somehow... It's like how certain flavors and food can complement and elevate each other. Yeah. If you are not a huge David Bowie fan, some for some reason him collaborating with Queen takes off the stuff that you might not like about him. And I would say the exact same thing about Freddie Mercury and Queen. If you don't like Queen, you respect the talent, but maybe it's the cheekiness, the theatricality, the kind of vaudeville thing that completely goes out the window because that shit doesn't fly in a David Bowie song. But with David Bowie, if you don't love David Bowie, it's probably because he's a little difficult. He's a little bit detached. He's a little too cool. He's a little too artsy. You can't do that with Queen because they're so hard on your sleeve. So it actually brings out the best elements of each, of each artist and forces them to leave their more controversial or divisive elements on the sidelines. I think that's so well said. And I think it brings out the best in both bands, the best in Freddie and David, certainly in their vocals. And like I said, I think they were both, Though it was a song that was supposed to be, you know, a new song on a greatest hits record, which was, you know, it, it, it just it was just supposed to be filler on a record. David Bowie and 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 uh, Freddie getting together weren't just trying to write a filler song, and you could really tell that in this song. What I'm curious though is is who is credited as songwriters on there? Do you have that in front of you? Is it say Queen and David Bowie? Because Queen always like, I, well, what does it say? 
Well, uh, yes, yes. It's it, it is. Um, it was released as Queen and David Bowie. So it's actually released as a standalone single, but the timing worked out to stick it on the, every different region got a different Queen greatest hits, regard, you know, depending on what had been a hit in whatever region. It also went on the subsequent Queen album. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is songwriters, Roger Taylor, Freddie Mercury, David Bowie, John Deacon, Brian May. Yeah, so... To me, that really feels like a John Deacon bass line. If you're familiar mm-hmm. with his bass playing at all, and he was very melodic, and uh, you know, the boy obviously could play anything. It feels it feels like John Deacon, and like you said, it really uh, it really brought the two worlds together, and really kind of. Well, I guess yeah, Bowie. I mean, I, I don't know. You look at David Bowie's career; he, he's definitely a classic rock artist. But that song really put them both out in the classic rock sphere i i it's hard for me to i'm trying to say but I, I think it bridged the gap between the two bands uh of any like theatrical pretense but just a pure rock and roll song with amazing lyrics don't forget how great the lyrics are in that the lyrics are just yeah. there isn't a missed a missed lyric a, a missed it all just fits together so well it's a magical song Right. Well, I was talking about this in a different context on another um, podcast about how there's kind of two ways for a band to get out of a scene and go mainstream. And one is to kind of water down the thing to where it's accessible to a mainstream crowd. You might say like a Nickelback did that with with metal, etc. And then there's the other ways to be so goddamn good at something that even people who would never listen to other bands from that genre can't deny it. And I would say that's what Metallica was able to do with thrash metal. This is not, you know, um, Dancing in the Streets is David Bowie and Mick Jagger doing shit that pop people will like. This is David Bowie and Queen doing things that are very, very true to themselves as artists, but in just such a monumentally undeniable way. Right, that's that's perfectly said. And obviously that Bowie, uh, Jagger was a cover song. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I, maybe there I, I I don't know what the circumstance was behind recording that. I think one of them was playing it live, so it was like a natural progression for Bowie and Jagger to record Dancing in the Streets. But yeah, I, I think it just shows, and I, Mick Jagger's a great songwriter, world-class songwriter, but it shows you the incredible genius of those two. Don't, don't sleep on Queen, too. Queen had a huge part of putting the parts together. Roger Taylor singing those high parts. I mean, you know, there's a lot going on in that song. A lot of it gets tribute to Freddie and David Bowie, but... Don't ever fuck with Queen, man. You know, they're just, you know, like you said, there's not many bands. I always say this about Queen. You don't, when you hear a new band, if you hear a new one every now and then, you don't hear say, yeah, they sound a lot like Queen. It's, it's very rare. Though I will say the new NH, NHC record, which is Dave Navarro and Taylor Hawkins and Chris Chaney, they got together. They put out a new record. It sounds a lot like Queen. So I'm kind of uh, just disregarding my own statement there. But like through the 80s, through the 90s, there weren't a lot of bands. Yeah, you know, except Jellyfish. We're like, yeah, they sound like Queen. You know, and that is that's, yeah. that's the ultimate uh, sign of respect to me. Right. Well, yeah, there, it's not it's not as uh, as durable and replicatable a formula as, say, the Rolling Stones, that's who right. are one of the easiest bands to to sound like. It doesn't it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just the way the way that it is. So I think the more interesting stuff that happened this month and my God, there's just so much monumental shit coming out on a monthly basis in this era. A lot of it, as I say, is kind of under the, the surface. I want to talk about the stuff that was really popping at the time. Olivia Newton-John made an album that. I think it was number one for 10 weeks. And I can remember, so 1981, I'm four years old. And I can remember 
watching this music video and going, something tells me this isn't just about exercise. <laughs> Got, you've got the idea, yeah. I mean, I'm third. I'm 13 when this came out. You, you know Holy what I'm saying? Holy shit! I'll, I'll leave you alone, Mark. Why? Why? And I, <laughs> my, my, a lot of people did leave me alone, and, and, and she was so <laughs> beautiful in that. I mean, she's I so she's beautiful now still, but man, yeah. there's something breathtakingly beautiful about her in that video. And this is this is during the days of all the you know the the um, the Jane Fonda aerobics craze was hitting and it was just gigantic. It was everywhere. The jazzercise thing was gnarly. This was the, um, you know, the, the socks, the, what are those things? The leg warmers were cracking. Leg warmers. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it was just like, it was not only was this song very catchy, but it hit a lifestyle moment too. That's when you get those 10 weeks at number one. And there's movies about this stuff. She did that movie with John Travolta. I, I can't remember what it's called, but it's also like a, the same kind of jazzercise type. Maybe it was, what, did she start on that? I don't know. There was just a lot going on with this whole Jane Fonda jazzercise movement. You know, so it there, there, you know, there's something about aerobics in the 1980s. It's a, sometimes you can explain it. And sometimes I don't really know that you, that you can. I think also Greece had been such a phenomenon and she was such a massive music star out of that, out of that. And, you know, Sandra D is this, is this virginal character who at the very, very end puts on the black leather jacket and takes a drag a jacket and takes a drag off a cigarette. This is the thing, uh, boys of a certain age were wanting to yeah, see. This is the from, continuation of from that. Sandra D. And don't forget what just started in August was MTV. So now we got this video that's just so blatantly sexual and you know, overt. Yeah. That yeah. it, it just the song was working on all levels in the early eighties, you know. So I who yeah. wrote, who wrote the song? Who wrote "Let's Get Physical"? That's a really really good question. Uh, produced by John Farrer, whose name would mean nothing to me except for Jason Ellis talking about him as a uh, an ongoing um, Australian pop sensation he was her longtime producer and he was at least one of the writers on this got it so that's coming out of, that's an australian team kind of like the max martin of, of australia yes got exactly you. exactly and this is oh here's a fun fact the very first compact disc not for commercial sale, but made as a one-off for a BBC TV show, kind of these like World of Tomorrow educational things. Look at this. We've got a music on a compact digital disc was an album that I think was the last Bee Gees album for some time. So we've talked before about how they are, uh, you know, obviously there's the pre-Bee Gees era and then there's... They almost just got too hot, became too identified with the disco thing, and they could still do the Bee Gees thing for other people. They could still even blatantly sing backup vocals on things for other people, but there was something about, I don't know, that guy's head, that guy's feathered hair that people just could no longer abide by, and they were well aware of it. So they went into, and one of these days we're going to do a whole episode on the the disco band's who tried to make the not disco follow up? We've talked about the village people doing that. I have a weird soft spot for the um, "Give It Up" by KC. Oh yeah, in the Sunshine Bin. You kidding me? Amazing. 
Lots of hits there. Right, but the Bee Gees pumped out a song. Are you familiar with the Bee Gees song called He's a Liar? I am not. I am not. But is this the tragedy record? What 81 record? It had to be tragedy, right? Living Eyes. That's the name of the record? The name, the name of the record. Wow. And yeah, I believe the biggest single from this is He's a Liar. Wow. So they, they this is after tragedy or whatever, whatever it came, I think it was called tragedy. And it was considered a commercial failure, though it, it, it's, it's still a lot of records off coming off Saturday Night, Live, uh, Saturday Night Fever. But um, well, I, don't even, I don't even know this. I don't, I've never even heard the song. Tragedy was on the album they made in 1979, Spirits Having Flown. Uh, and right. the so- next thing that they would do, which nobody would pretty much hear, was um, the soundtrack for Staying Alive. Gotcha, gotcha. Which is not to be confused with Saturday Night Fever. Staying right. Alive was the sequel that nobody cared about that was also way too late for the disco craze. That, that is funny, though. You never you don't think of Staying Alive as a sequel to Saturday Night Fever. I never do, but it was. Of course it was, yeah. That's the song. That's the name of the song. It's, it's so crazy. It's like, if they called a, it's like if they called a Rocky movie Eye of the Tiger. So anyway, here's uh, Bee Gees and He's a Liar. To me, sounds like a band who has a very good idea of what they're not supposed to do. Yeah, no, that that's that's a band that's dying. When you're copying yeah. lyrics from Nick Lowe, "Cruel to Be Kind," and like <laughs> we, weird sound. But the weirdest thing at that time, like you mentioned, they were writing hit songs for other people at that time. At the time that that came out, you know, they were writing "Heartbreaker," they were writing "Islands in the Stream" for other people, but they released that for themselves. I, it's, that's not making any sense to me. I absolutely 100% agree. And as always, the caveat, I might not know what I'm talking about, but I think I have this, I think I have this straight. No, you, you do. And I, I lived in that area, on that era, and I don't think there was ever been a bigger backlash against a band so quickly that's been so big that just mm-hmm. two years earlier, who were the biggest band uh, on earth with spirits having flown, tragedy was a big hit for them. Yeah, this this well this is the first thing they did after the Barbara Streisand album Guilty, which I'm guessing has like Woman in Love yeah, on it. Yeah, Guilty right. and Woman in Love, and uh, I'm so so they were they were an arena playing band, and then they went they, they just they, they were an embarrassment, like they became a novelty. And you're talking about a band before disco was was competing with the likes of the Rolling Stones, um, you know, uh, like you know Moody Blues, Beatles for chart position. They were they were considered like a, a, a classic rock band, so. It's, it's an incredible trajectory career they've had. And the documentary is phenomenal. I don't know if you see the Bee Gees documentary. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. Now, you mentioned, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just watched um, I, I just watched the, the Traveling Wilburys documentary, which was filmed on like a camcorder. I, I, I don't, I, I, there's something, if, you, if somebody tells me something is really, really good, I'm like, cool, duly noted. I'm going to go find some, nonsense that somebody <laughs> shot on a camcorder and watch it on YouTube instead. It's a, it's an actual disorder that I've got. I have no doubt that my time would have been way better spent watching the thing that you keep recommending. It's a contra- it's a contrarian effect, and that's what we love you totally. But if, I, I tell you this, so that Traveling Wilburys fan a camcorder sounds amazing to me. 
If you saw them rad. writing the songs with Roy Orbison there, I'd love to see that. But so you could, it's on YouTube. That's where I saw it. So they're at they realized they did a song for whatever reason, and they had fun doing it. And I think they said that it was all at uh, God. Why am I blanking on his name? Tom Dave Petty. from Tom Petty's house, right? Or Jeff? Lynn. I thought it was. Jeff no, Lynn. no, no, no. I thought I, I thought it was um, Mike Campbell from. From your rhythmics, Dave. Oh, Dave Stewart. Dave Stewart. Yeah. I think it may have been at his house. He may have been the one who actually produced the thing. Don't quote me on that. But they all had ten days in their in their collective schedules. Uh-huh. So they just went there ten days in a row, wrote and recorded a song, and that's the first um, the first Wilburys album. And then and then uh, Orbison is dead before it comes out. Wow, it's crazy. That's that's insane. I got I got to look at that one. Another good documentary since we're in the era Sparks documentary. Never been a huge Sparks fan, but it's phenomenal. Yeah, the documentary is unbelievable. Of course, it's called you know uh, Meet the Sparks or or no the Sparks Brothers, and they are brothers, so it's called the yes. Sparks Brothers. Yeah. Right. That Edgar Wright made that. Am I wrong? I think you're right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That came that came out recently. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So it's funny because now that we're it's really clicking with me now. Yes, MTV is out in 1981, and these songs are from the absolute deepest recesses of my pop culture memory. I'm like my daughter's age. Your retention like, was amazing, bro. You're four, you know, soaking it all in. I'm impressed. I, I remember. I remember physical. I remember getting all kinds of weird feels. Some welcome, <laughs> some unwelcome from that. And, and, and I definitely remember in my household, for me and my sister, this was probably the biggest song of 1981. <laughs> Again, if I could go back in time and ask four-year-old me what I thought my angel is a centerfold was about. Didn't matter. You felt no. it, bro. You felt That's it. That's right. You, you know now. And what a great song. That's such a classic pop rock song. I, I don't know about you, but I've never been a gigantic, you know, deep dive with that band. But that song no. is perfect. That song is perfect. And Jake Giles is not a guy. It's a band. No, that's right, and and I I think Freeze Frame, it's, the album's called Freeze Frame, may have been a better, a, a bigger hit. Um, no, that's not true. Centerfold, Centerfold was, was number, one. yeah. Centerfold. Centerfold was number one, and Freeze Frame was four. To me, I'll definitely take Centerfold over Freeze Frame, and this is just not the kind of story that we tell anymore. Freeze Frame, the tenth studio album, unbelievable by Jay Giles, and you know I what? Na- I can't name another song by them. Uh, y- y- do you remember the song? Do, 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 do I want you to be my side? I do now. Do, do, you probably see it. They, they had a huge benefit from MTV because they were starting to make conceptual videos where the band was still playing, but they did the thing in the high school and they were passing the notes and centerfold. Storylines, yeah. out the video. So they, they really found a little caveat because Peter Wolf was very charismatic as a performer. So he really slid into the video uh, aesthetic perfectly and i think they were part you know that thing we've talked about a few times with the south south side johnny and 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 billy joel and bruce springsteen doing that sort yeah. of northeastern slog i think they were part of that whole thing that's why this was their 10th record man so there were yeah. bands that were getting those chances and if you had some territorial success 
they did let you keep making a record, you know, because maybe it would pay off like this. And I think this record yeah. sold six or seven million copies. So it's hugely paid off. For that. That's right. It wasn't such a boomer bust thing. There were a lot of bands that were just sort of breaking even. And who right. was going to stop you because you're still you're still breaking even. And man, that thing is in is in full thrust. The the Bruce Springsteen E Northeastern thing. You and I have already talked on the episode that we did about the bands who sound like Bruce Springsteen. I don't know if you'll recall Bob Weir from yeah. The Grateful Dead took a crack at doing a Bruce Springsteen oh, thing. Yeah. This is the month that that comes out and also a band that we're not going to get to today. There's just not enough time to talk about. Mink DeVille is another sort of under the radar. I read a review of the Mink DeVille album that came out. It's called Coup de Grasse where they say this band is out Bruce Springsteening Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> it's just amazing that Lane was so gigantic. Yeah. Um, because I'm out here in the West Coast and I, I think we, we were almost the last people to get Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. No, that's, it's not for you. It's not no, for you. Bob, it, Se- Bob Seger's not for you. Go no. to the beach, get a taco. Well, we needed a hit, though. And when we got the yeah. hits, okay, we welcomed we in. Then we, yeah. we did the deep dive backwards, you know? You know what's really fun for me is, uh, and I give a lot of credit to the the artists and the albums and the songs that I would have guessed came out years after when they actually did and there's there's three of those i mean you were a little bit older a little bit more with it i guess you can um place them more in the context but to me look i have i have very little shame i know this is not for everybody this to me is one of my absolute favorite songs of the 1980s and i've always argued that this band worked about three hit songs worth of song and hooks into this song and if you'd asked me i would have guessed this song had come out in like 1984 but here we are in october of 1981 with the signature hit from loverboy could name you lots and lots and lots of far more credible rock and metal bands that do not have a riff nearly as distinctive as the guitar riff from working for the weekend and you know your guitar player when you let that riff go you did not disturb it i was waiting for you to cut it off you had it's so great and i tell you one of the most underrated rock vocalists of all time, I think of you. you've still said this. Notes today, I said this before, is yeah. Mike Reno. Uh, and if you don't believe me, listen to "Turn Me Loose." I wanna when it's that note, he still hits it today. Uh, and that what is a great rock and roll band. And what's interesting now, Tully, is we're getting into October '81, and the labels are figuring out that this little MTV thing might be something. Now I'm starting to visualize the songs you're playing with the videos. And that right, that's funny. That hasn't happened in the earlier months, you know, and you're seeing the bands that were able to pivot and go into the videos and see the future. And those maybe the Mink DeVilles of the world, maybe those um, uh, other bands that weren't so visually appealing going the other way. Like, I don't, I don't think Steve Miller had another hit after uh, Abracadabra. So it's just interesting. OK, funny you should mention Steve Miller. I just I don't think we can uh i don't think we can do this but if anybody has 18 minutes to kill go check out the steve miller album circle of love that came out in this month in october of 1981 side b 
is an 18 minute long song called Macho City. Oh, boy. <laughs> I love it already. <laughs> Tell me about the song. What was it? We'll play, oh, fuck it. We'll play Macho City. I, don't, I got nothing better to do. Uh, Besides it being long, I mean, what, what, is the, what is the rub on the thing? And this is coming from a guy who had some of the best three minute, you know, classic rock songs of all time. Well, clearly he was going for something big and conceptual, and I listened to a clip of it. I listened to a clip of it yesterday, and I got, I don't want to say Steely Dan, but I got a little bit of, um, like, it's more of a talking, like, I'm a, I'm a cool guy who gets it. Let me tell you how the world really is. Kind gotcha. of like a detached cool thing. Hold on. Uh, uh, you got a little, little proggy, you got a little proggy Tom Waits here with it. And and I, 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 talking I about music I, I, is like, go ahead. Abracadabra came out in 82, forgive me, I'm just going through my mind. So I know he had one more hit after that, but I don't. I can't recall the video for Abracadabra. I know they made one. Um, right. But I, I don't think it got the love it deserved. Uh, for the, I know the song was a huge hit. All right, here's a little clip of Macho City. What's wrong and what's right? Macho City! Politicians <laughs> and lawyers all know what it means. They'll be keeping it all legal with political visqueen. Macho City! Yeah, dude. There's a little bit of do 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 in the background, but otherwise, man, it's like it's like it's like poor man Zappa. There's that almost sounds like a, a parody, a joke. Like, yes. so he's rapping now and telling us about like <laughs> street life and culture. I mean, listen, Grandmaster Flash was coming out. Maybe he was maybe experimenting a little bit, and uh, maybe he thought his music had to evolve somehow. But just giving those three minute slices of Steve Miller all day—that's all we need. Yes, exactly. You know, it's or, funny because you know, it's, it's almost like yeah, almost like. It's almost like, tell me what you do worse, Steve, and we're going to record that for 15 minutes. Well, we'll make that an 18-minute long song. Yeah, I probably rap really badly. And how about a song called <laughs> Macho City? Let's try that. That's <laughs> So it's funny you mentioned that, you know, we're starting to associate the, our, our audio memories of these songs are tied up in our video memories of these songs. And indeed, that's not a connection that I had made so we're almost out of the bands that were already big established artists. Indeed, there's only one more that's already a big established artist. All the rest of the ones I'm going to play that, as I say, are probably more interesting are coming from more of a credible, artsy, alt-rock kind of lane. But also every single one of them is going to be very, very visual friendly. Right, right. Which is... Which I, is right. Again, never underestimating the power that MTV had. And it didn't have it then. It was still a fledgling thing. It wasn't in 100% of yeah. the household yet. You still had right. to ask your cable provider for it. So, But I think those that saw the future really knew how to manipulate MTV. And again, 81 is an interesting thing. And it's 81, a year I never thought in my mind before we went down these deep dives, I never thought it was that significant to the world right. and recorded music. But you're seeing now hip-hop becoming something. You're seeing punk rock and new wave, the bands that were going to be makers, the bands are going to be pretenders. You're seeing rock and roll start with Motley Crue and bands like that. 81 is such a pivotal year in music. And I would never have said that if you told me, if you'd asked me before this, what's one of the most important years to like define music that was coming in the 80s? I probably would have said like 87, you know what yeah. I mean? Maybe 84, 81 would have never entered my mind. Right, right. And uh, we have the police coming up next 
who are, first of all, they're a band that easily transitions into the video age, helps to have a photogenic lead singer. And we have a band that's also in transition because, at least according to guitar player Andy Summers, he said, this is when we started to feel like the the backing musicians in a pop singer's band. Right. And they're coming from the punk rock ethos yeah. and aesthetic, basically. You know, they broke mm-hmm. out. They, they were so talented that they weren't going to be denied as musicians and songwriters. But, you know, that, that's what they were coming from, the English beat, the, the, you know, that two-tone era. I remember, I remember seeing Sting wear the English beat shirt and, uh, and um, uh, 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 don't stand so close to me. So I, that was their stomping grounds, and now they're becoming the biggest band in the world, you know? That's right. And this is another one that I would have guessed was, I would have guessed that, uh, so the album is Ghost in the Machine, and the song that your mom remembers from this is Every Little Thing She Does is Magic, and I can still picture the music video of that's just sort of a very simple, we'll take a camera down for a couple hours while they're in the recording studio. I would have guessed that this next song was off of like synchronicity. To me, this is way ahead of the curve of where uh, the police and music in general are going in the 1980s. going to say that they started i don't know who started it but that um obviously reggae inspired but not strictly reggae pulsing on that keyboard how yeah. many 80s songs you know even tom petty oh yeah ended up doing that oh, ain't nothing gonna break a monster that's coming soon too you know so mm-hmm. I, they recorded this record Montserrat, which is an island you know down there and and that's where they did the everything you do everything we, she does she does his magic and the, the chain you know during uh switching each other's hats and all that stuff in the record. So I think there's obviously a real reggae vibe in that, but it's not them plagiarizing reggae. It's no, that, not at all. You know, like you hear that song, like Spirits of Interior World, I would never say, oh, that's a reggae song until I listen no. to it. And it's so clearly reggae influence. That's how, that's, that's the genius of being influenced by something, but making your own. That is such a police song, but it's so clearly a reggae pulse, like you said. Okay, so and also Lindsey Buckingham put out a record. Every single person on Fleetwood Mac clearly put out a solo record in 1981, and Stevie Nicks sold more than all of them put combined, uh, combined times a couple. Well, she just kept making Fleetwood Mac records, let's be honest. You know what I mean? Yeah. Lindsey was getting a little bit new wavy and punk. What was the name of his record at this time, Tully? Yeah, the, uh, the album is called Law and Order. The single is called Trouble. Right, I think I'm in trouble. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I sure do. Yeah, it's, cool I, actually, I didn't. I did. Well, let's play it if we're only talking about. I I didn't remember it. Um, I don't think it's his most distinctive thing. You know what's funny? I keep talking about this, um, solo album that he put out a couple months ago, and I thought that he had kind of turned over a little bit of a of a new leaf compared to the other solo stuff that I've heard from him. I can hear now clearly it was very much a return to form. It sounds exactly like the shit that he's doing in 1981. And yeah, this is a song that was, I think, at least like a like a top 20, top 15 oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. hit it for was, him. It was a big video, too. Oh, honey, 
actually like that a little bit better the second time through. It's it's a vibe. It's it's tough to that's not that's that doesn't have radio smash hit all over it. It's a little bit more of like a like a soundtracky kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna test you your listening skills a little bit more. But it, you know, I, I in hearing it again, it, it's more Fleetwood Mac in that than I thought. But it yeah. has a really new wavy production in it. I think it's packaged a little differently. And certainly the video, he's got makeup on, he's got short hair, and it's all kind of spiked up a little bit. So he's yeah. he, he's I think he's just repackaging what he does so well, which is you know Fleetwood Mac songs. Okay, so now on to the bands that are that these records didn't necessarily uh, announce themselves in the same way that the other ones did. In most cases, they didn't pop like the other ones did in the popular consciousness. But um, to pick one example, in this month in 1981, U2 released the album October, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's their second album. I believe so. thought that their the Christian element of U2 got a little bit overrated because it was just part of the Irish cliche but from what I gather having done a little research on that album like all of them were in I don't want to say a cult but like going to church on Sunday wasn't quite enough for them at that point they also got involved in a little organization that took it really really seriously and the chorus of that song is literally like Latin. It's a Bible uh, verse. It's a Bible verse. Yeah, it's like it's like words. It's like words from the Mass in Latin. It's Gloria in Excelsior. I mean, it's what you say. There's a good Irish Catholic boy, right? Yeah, exactly. It's what I say in church when I go every Christmas. You know, right? You know, exactly. And so, but also growing up, they went to Catholic school, so it's just it was just by osmosis they were writing just by what they knew. I don't. I would never say they were carrying a flag for religion, but it was like, it's what they were about. It was just part of them. So naturally would infiltrate the writing. I think as they toured America more and became more sort of international, I would say mm-hmm. their influences got a little broader and more universal for sure. But this is what you were getting. You know, you were getting October, you were getting Sunday, bloody Sunday. You were getting boy, you know, you, you were getting, um, I will follow. That's just what they knew. They were just an Irish, almost punk rock band because they have punk rock roots as well. That's right. The album was lyrically inspired by the memberships of Bono, The Edge, and Larry Mullen in a Christian group called the Shalom Fellowship, contains spiritual and religious themes. Their involvement with Shalom Fellowship led them to question the relationship between the Christian faith and rock and roll lifestyle, and at least according to this Wikipedia entry, threatened to break up the band. So at this point, they're kind of a Christian rock band. Like if 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 something if some tragedy befalls, if they get on a plane with Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper, the, the, the month after this comes out, they are remembered as a Christian rock band. You know that that's that's interesting because I don't think Christian rock or music was popular during that time as of yet. It hadn't become a viable, let's say, commercial entity. Do you? I mean, because like, I, I, I look, I don't. In a retrospect, at U2's career, I don't think we call them a Christian band. Oh, they certainly have elements of that for sure, you know. But um, 
I, I don't know. I think rock and roll won in that one. Yeah, it usually does. Yeah, for the, for the good bands anyway. It's you know, it's 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 tough. It's you know, it's a tough one to be. So as I say, so much stuff going on this month. I say it every month, but it just blows my mind month after month. Depeche Mode in this same month released Jeez. their right. debut, released their debut album, and. In some ways, I think this is best understood, and perhaps Depeche Mode would probably prefer that we understand this as the debut albums from both Depeche Mode and Erasure, because that's the only way of explaining away a song that Depeche Mode has been sort of embarrassed by and apologizing for ever since. A lot of the stuff was written by Vince Clark, who would leave the band after this album, start Yaz, a.k.a. Yazoo, and then go on to become the creative force in Erasure. But at this point... Depeche Mode sounds an awful lot like Yaz <laughs> and, <laughs> and and Erasure and and this song right here. such a fan of Vince Clark. It's it's almost weird to call people a musician when it's not even clear what they're playing live in the studio, even and what they're programming. But uh, Erasure songs, I can take or leave. I don't even love Yaz all that much, but there's literally instrumentals that have were thrown out along the way as B-sides from Erasure that are just him. Nobody ever made that silly, retro, almost Nintendo-y keyboard stuff. F- more fun, more anthemic, hookier than than Vince Clark. And that's not a name that, it's just this bias that we've always had because of, I guess, the rockist press. Everybody can name the guitar player of every band of all time, but people just don't know Vince Clark's name because he can't play guitar, basically. I mean, that's so true. You know, the purist in all of us, you know, will say, oh, Vince Clark, he doesn't belong in the pantheon of amazing songwriters. You gotta be kidding me. You know what I mean? He really started his own lane was yeah. in three successful bands, gigantically successful bands, uh, and, and was instrumental in starting a new genre of music. And and, and t- to me, I, I don't care how you come up with the song, dude. I don't care if you hum it to a, a musician. You're a songwriter. You sure. know, that's, that's what you are. Um, and he certainly taught Depeche Mode how to write songs. You know, uh, Martin Gore became a songwriter because of Vince Clark. Uh, Partly, part, you know, necessity is a mother invention. When Vince Clark left, some had to write songs. But Martin Gore, I learned at the uh, at the altar of one of the best songwriters of that particular genre. So I totally agree with you. I can't agree with you more. I wonder if he wrote the me- the melodies too, because I think what's a lot of Vince Clark's music. If you just get out of the way of Vince Clark, you're going to have a hit. But if right. you if you put a melody over that sucks, you're going to ruin Vince Clark's music. Yeah, that's what the lesser erasure songs sound Pretty like. Much. And I say and I say this and I say this as a fan. When it works, it works. And sometimes you're like, you know, that song was kind of just fine the way it is. I mean, somebody I'd love to know who wants to hold up their hand for that one because that is uh that's not well, it was already kind of going a little bit goth. That is that's like a human league yeah. melody oh, that you're that you're doing right there. Let's see. The song it is final single to be written by Vince. Clark. Yeah, he's the only credited songwriter Here. on that. So, so yeah. he knows his way around a, a melody as well. Listen, I'd love to be embarrassed by that song. I would love to have that in my arsenal. You know what I mean? That's such a, a 
that puts me right in my high school years too. I'm dating myself. I don't care. Such an amazing song. This same month, Prince released wow, his man. Four, Jesus his, Christ. He released his fourth studio album. Um, and do you know what? Because I've never been the biggest Prince fan. When he passed, I just went back because you know the streaming services make this so easy, and I just went through album by album, and I was really underwhelmed by the first couple of albums. It it really took Prince a yeah. little while to figure out what the the Prince thing was. And I don't know, maybe it's the album before this, maybe it's the uh, 1999's the album after this. He obviously figures it out by then. But this is as good a place as any to say that this is Prince really finding the Prince lane. And, and to a great extent, that means... Once again, the 80s kind of start here because how many bands lived off of taking their cue from Prince who was in the same way that Kanye West is like the pop artist slash genius and everybody else can just do watered down versions of that and at least be in the game. Mm -hmm. Prince provided that template for a hundred bands that anybody that wasn't using acoustic instruments in the 1980s for damn sure was doing their homework and seeing what Prince was doing. That's a, that's a perfect analogy. And also, you can just skip genres, too. I mean, he was influencing Slash as well as influencing other players. And, and you got to know, I think it took a while for Prince to find his sound because he loved Jimi Hendrix. He was playing in rock bands. You see him, he had a big throw out to here. He was playing a rock band. So it took him a while to find out that, you know, that, that a jock strap and a trench coat and R&B go really well. Maybe that's your lane. It's hard to find yourself in Paisley playing along to a voodoo child. And it's... Yeah. It, takes a little while to get to, you know, 1999 or purple coat and a jock strap. But, you know, you got to give him some patience. And he finally found it. And he found the right combination of bands. Uh, you know, Wendy and Lisa, huge part of that. Uh, you know, the, the the band was huge. And I think he just found the right parts. That's sometimes all it takes. And here's the lead single off of his fourth album, which came out in October of Also noteworthy on that album, Do Me Baby. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, when, when yeah. you're out of lyrics, always a Do Me Baby is good. Uh, <laughs> but you can hear what's coming with that, man. You know, that he's still punk, punk, funkin' right there, kind of Rick James style. Yeah. But it, it's it's getting ready for superstardom, man. You can feel that, the groove of that. And like I said, Wendy Lisa's backing vocals are a huge part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, you, could, you could just about sing 1999 over that. Yeah, that's correct. That's exactly right. Um, okay, here's another thing. Maybe okay, maybe you can explain this to me because I keep reading it and rereading it and I don't get it. In October of 1981, Billy Idol releases a, an EP called Don't Stop, which features the um, his song, his cover version of Moni Moni. Mm-hmm. Moni Moni does not become a hit until 1987, and I'm led to believe that's because it was actually a live version of Moni Moni that hit. But come on, it's the same recording. Maybe they added some crowd noise. You cannot tell me that the hit version of Moni Moni was a pure live version. Look, I'm just going to play it for you. This is this is Moni Moni by Billy Idol. How is this not? Okay, well, it says there's the live version. Okay, I'm going to do both. Okay, from the Don't Stop EP, Billy Idol, Moni Moni. Well, 
Like, did he just bury the original version and now all subsequent releases have the new? Like, that's the hit song. What the hell? I think there's a marriage of the two. Because I remember in the live version, because I remember the video. I, I yeah. know it's an 87. Now you're really talking videos. Sure. Uh, they do a breakdown where they have the backing vocals go, I love you, mom, and say I do. I don't know if that was in that part. It might have been. But I know there's a real live feel to it. And at the end of the, the, uh, the song kind of just kind of, it, it, it kind of just uh, fades out and you can hear them like talking live. So they, I'm sure they had sweetened it with crowd noise. I'm sure they, they probably took the best of both parts and married them, you know? Right, right, right. In any event, a song that was going to be one of, probably one of the top 10 biggest songs of 1987. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's just there also on, it's just an EP, a re-recording of dancing with myself and basically hot, hot, the, in the, city, hot in the city hot in the city hot in the city for sure like the entire billy idol kit essentially is is there in this 1981 ep what's well, produced so well who produced someone really big produced that uh i can't remember who seymour uh, stein or so, someone like really wanted really believed in billy idol and got some hot shit producer keith forsey uh, keith keith Forsyth, i think just says 4C, an English pop producer uh, influenced by Giorgio Moroder. Yeah, he was a hot shot, had a lot of disco stuff. and so They're they were trying to take Billy Idol's punkness, but yeah. add a commercial sensibility to it. And that was, it's Keith 4C, F-O-R-S-E-Y. That's exactly right. Gotcha, gotcha. He produced Billy Idol's um, solo debut in 83, produced Rebel Yell, which furthered his affection for synthesized um, pop and uh, Steve Stevens' heavy metal song. Steve Stevens, of course, Billy Idol's um, right-hand man guitar player. 83, that was, was the year that established him as a producer. He co-wrote Flashdance, What a Feeling, with Giorgio Moroder. And uh, he led to him co-writing songs on the Ghostbusters soundtrack, Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack, et cetera, et cetera. He's off to the races after that. Yeah. So he had great pop sensibilities. Kind of like, kind of like Billy Idol's Mutt Lang, if you will. You know what I mean? Kind of brought him into the pop side where Mutt Lang did for ACDC and um, did for Def Leppard. You know, he sweetened him up, made him big sound naming. That EP sounds great today, man. It sounds big. You just played it. It sounds awesome. Yeah. Once again, to me, it's just such a, a fair test, particularly when the technology was improving. So I'm not surprised nowadays if some if I hear a record and I think it's new and it turns out it came out 10 years ago. They've yeah. kind of hit a wall with how far they can take Sonic Fidelity. Something that sounded like 1987 and 1981. That's really saying something. Absolutely. October of 1981 also saw the release of I want to say this is the third studio album from The Human League. And their first foray into a uh, a straight ahead grab for the brass ring of pop superstardom, which they accomplished with this signature 1980s hit. Top 10 song of the 80s, wouldn't you say? I mean, top 10 of the 80s? 
Uh, I, I don't know about that. I Sometimes I just sit there and play games with myself. about like My, my kids have really gotten into, I don't know where they heard it in some kids' movie, Take On Me by AHA. And I sit uh-huh. there and I go, and I go this, this, this is the best song of the 80s, right? It's got to be the best song in the 80s. And then I just start going down this, this spiral of, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? I, it, I, to me, is it one of the 10 best songs? Definitely not. It, it actually still has a lot of a... Um, it has a, a, a 70s thing, if we're being really critical here, and a very distinctly Euro thing. An American band wasn't going to be making that. The Don't, you, right. want, Don't you Want Me Baby is, right. belongs to a, a, there's a certain brand of 1970s UK cheese that well, that I, is I still indebted to. I would love to, to double down on that very thing because I think you're so right. This was a band that was played. This was part of the K-Rock phenomenon. We talk about it all the time, KRQ. Human League was being played on K-Rock but they, you know, they, they weren't getting in, they weren't breaking into the major pop stations. This was one of our first K-Rock bands that broke into the top 40, top 10. Oh, right. So like, oh my God, we're so proud of our human league. You know, but of course we couldn't like them anymore because we thought they sold out. You know, so it was interesting to see that. Wow, the human league went out there. I wonder who's up next because human league, don't forget, was still, they got signed off that post-punk thing and i think the some of the labels were tired of these of carrying these post-punk bands that were selling fifty thousand records maybe seventy-five thousand. look yeah. at we're gonna give you one more shot and you better get that brass ring like you said at the beginning of this and human league was was talented enough and, and found a song to do that you know yeah. um and then the psychedelic furs and the duran durans and the culture clubs were about to follow you know I also think that song deserves a little bit of credit. The more that I go back and, and get inside this stuff, just the, the casual sexism and misogyny of this stuff is just so mind-blowing to modern ears. The, the, the second verse of this song where the, the female corrects the historical record must have been so insanely refreshing to women who were used to paying the price of listening to themselves being objectified just to get on the dance floor, just because they wanted a beat that they could dance to. It actually is like one of the more um, um, human depictions of female emotion that you would find in an eighties pop song. I feel like. I think you're totally right. And having a guy like Phil who came out wearing you know mascara, lipstick and all that also being, you know, the guy being spoken to. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful duality of what you're saying because you know that 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 didn't happen you know in, in those songs back then it sounds so crazy uh because you know he's leading with this misogyny you're so lucky to help me i took you out of the waitress and like she's like nah bro this yeah. is how it really went down yeah and it's just, you know you forget about how poignant the lyrics are in that song it's great yeah i think the verses carry that way more than 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 the chorus does that's the rare hit song i would say that about if you would ask me um i would not have uh well i i would not have believed you if you had told me that elvis costello released an album of country covers well i might have believed that but i would not have realized that i knew one of these songs pretty well again when these things just all belong to the mist of that's that artist and you go you didn't realize he went through this little phase you're nodding like you know what i'm talking about in 1981 the fifth album from elvis costello and the attractions is it's called almost blue and it just to give you some idea of where country i mean where country still is in regard to the indie rock alternative world the record came with a warning label that said warning this album contains country and western music and may cause <laughs> offense to narrow-minded listeners 
that's a, that's a beautiful way to say open your open your ears. You know what I mean? That's beautiful. Yeah, and this is uh, Elvis Costello goes country. What a good He's challenging his fan base right there. I, I got to say, and, yeah. and more power to him. You're talking about peace, love, and understanding, Oliver's Army, and he goes right into that. You know, he still hadn't had a lot of commercial success in the States yet to be releasing that. You know, every day I write the book, I think it was two years away still. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it's interesting for him to take that turn right there. And I'm sure the label went, yeah, we'll support you on the, You know what I mean? Because they, they were probably so close with Elvis Costello right there and yeah. knew the wealth of talent this man had. That yeah. was always undeniable. But to take a country turn, an unironic country turn there. It's like a set of brass balls by Elvis Costello. A, a deep country turn because it would have been one thing. If you change the instrumentation on that, you can pass that off as Elvis Absolutely. Costello songs. Once you throw in the pedal steel, there's no Over. debating that we are doing faithful country music here and pulling it Absolutely. off. And you can tell in Ernest Bean's voice, and it's the first thing really like gruff. It was not a gruff vocal delivery. And it really showed his vocal prowess. He's a very underrated vocalist, man. He's got an incredible voice. I mean, look, you don't get to write with Burt Backrack if, if someone doesn't think you've got a, you know, world-class voice, you know? Or, or Paul McCartney. Damn as well, exactly. Uh, let's see. Let's do a couple more songs. So those are the bands that are going to be big that are hitting their stride. Here are a couple of acts that, at least in my ears, are not quite there yet. This same month in 1981, Eurythmics released their debut album. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the next wave all in October. You know? Right, which is, uh, which isn't it's funny because we were saying, you know, all of the bands that will be prodded to put out these fourth quarter releases, there's not really a whole lot going on that's going to be under people's Christmas trees. It's just all the shit that nobody even noticed came out that year that was going to be the biggest bands in the world a year, two, three, four years later. Anyway, this is what Eurythmics come out of the box with. Do you know that song? I, I've never heard that song in my life. Right. Uh, I'm a Eurythmics fan. I'm an Annie Lennox fan. I've never heard that. What I'm hearing, though, with that song is a band that has no idea what it is, really. Sure. You know, you're you're sitting on two superstars with Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox, and her voice is not really being showcased, and the production's kind of crazy, even though mm -hmm. David Stewart's an amazing producer. I'm hearing literally loud guitars because Dave's a guitar player. So that's, that's an interesting underuse or maybe misuse of two incredible talents. So it's phenomenal. They hadn't had their sea legs yet, you know? Absolutely. Positively. That was um, 
peaked at number 63 in the UK, did get a music video that I don't uh, think, I, mean, I guess just about any music video would get some play on MTV. They were so starved for content in right. those days, but that did absolutely uh, nothing as, as far as I can tell. And can you see a picture? Can you see a, did she have the orange shocking hair yet? Or was that to come? You know, Cause that was a huge part of the whole thing. You know? Of course. Um, wait, 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 wait. I just saw a still from the music video. Yeah. She's got short. Yeah. She's got orange short hair. orange hair. The music gotcha. video looks like what you'd expect from, it's got them having a surreal tea party and there's a guy, she's wearing an evening dress and they're like on the banks of the Thames or something. And there's a yeah. guy, there's a guy wearing a crown hat playing a flute. It's, it's right everyone. on brand, dude. It's yeah. on brand. <laughs> yeah. Visual, visually, they may have been a tiny little bit ahead of uh, where they were going to get musically. You know, I think it's interesting. I read um, the memoir from Joe Jackson. I think it's called A Cure for Gravity. Mm-hmm. And he talks about he went to an actual, like, he's he's actually a, um, a educated in music. And he talked about seeing this mousy little girl running through the hallways at the same time that he never really talked to. And it ended up being Annie Lennox. No kidding. Do you remember what school it was, by chance? I could not tell you. That's crazy. And... Um, Another band that was going to obviously take full advantage of their lead singer's dashing good looks and their um, ability to write massive stadium-ready hooks was in excess. But at this point, they are not there yet. Do you know this song right here? of their second album underneath the colors i've heard it because they, they were part of the k-rock phenomenon yeah. again another band that was early that we lost to the pop charts them i think soft cell was the next one we we're gonna lose <laughs> in a little bit uh but yes I pretty do soon know after that, that you could totally have them back if you wanted them <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh but yeah so i i remember that being played on k-rock back in the day um but it's so interesting when you hear these songs, how much the bands grew, yeah. you know, and how how so many bands don't get a shot today for A&R development. Like uh, us, our first record, we, we were just kids in a candy store. We didn't really, you know, how many bands get to make music for their life before they get signed? Not many. You got jobs and stuff like that. When you get to focus on songwriting every day, focus on your, 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 your music, and then you start touring, and you're playing every night. By default, the idea is that you get better. Now, no, but back then, bands were still being, you know, uh, shepherded and being championed and being uh, being nurtured. But you, that that's a perfect example. That right there, and except you would never heard of them today. No, but they got they got you know they got a couple chances, and here we are. Same with the uh, would you say uh, with the ten record was out. Um, Oh, 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 Jake Giles. Uh, Jake Giles. Yeah. yeah. So right, it, it's it's interesting how much great music is being lost, I guess, because nothing's being developed anymore, you know? Right. I, I wonder about that, because in theory, band, bands are not being developed because there's no development money, but on the other hand, like, I here's the example I'd use. Time was, if you were on Saturday Night Live and you got fired from Saturday Night Live, we never heard from you again. And now there's, That's right. now there's plenty of people who are like, well, okay, well, now I'll go do this and I'll go do that. 
there's no barrier to entry to making music and putting it on Spotify. So theoretically, if you get the big deal, if anybody still gets the big deal and it doesn't work out, nobody's stopping you from making four more albums and trying to to find your thing. I don't know. I'm not saying that band hasn't existed. I I just don't know. I haven't heard that story. But in a way, it's back to where we started, where you can totally do that. But at this point in time, it was put up or shut up and... You know, the, 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 the takeaway line from Into the Great Wide Open by um, by uh, Tom Petty is their A&R man said, I don't hear a single. Yeah. That was the kiss, yeah, of, that I, was, that was the kiss of death. Yeah, of, of course. And, and I think today, too, like people aren't taking the time to develop themselves as musicians because they don't have to because of technology. Yeah. So you, you might stumble upon this like novelty hit, but it not a career will it make. So it's very interesting way music's played out right now. I always say this. The good news is everybody can do it. Yep. That's also the bad news. Right, know? right. Well, to a certain extent, back then, everybody could do it too because nobody ever stopped Ringo Starr from making solo albums. <laughs> Your segues are unbelievable. I, I, uh, I, I got two more songs. This is one of them, yeah. so... You got to bear in mind, hanging over. What the this, hell was he doing in '81? Well, hanging like- hanging over this whole year of music is the fact that now John Lennon had been murdered in December of the prior year, and everybody's still giving Ringo handouts. George Harrison, I think, produced this album called "Stop and Smell the Roses," and I think McCartney gave him some stuff, and I think John Lennon had demoed a couple of tracks that he wasn't all that hot on that he gave to Ringo. And now when John uh, was was murdered, then Ringo goes, I don't feel good about using that. And Yoko goes, all right, well, we're going to go back in the studio, maybe clean it up with some, you know, we'll, we'll sweeten it with some more instrumentation. And they end up releasing this stuff. Long story short, John had given Ringo, nobody told me there'll be days like this. Wow, and Ringo. I didn't know that. And oh, Ring, and if you think about it, it's it suits Ringo's talk singy old right, man right, kind right. of thing. So Ringo didn't feel right about recording it anymore, and it's and it's going to be a hit for John Lennon posthumously. And instead, among other abominations, the album "Stop and Smell the Roses" features the opening track. Drumming is my madness. Woo! Drumming makes me happy. I know that there are people who will defend his drumming and it's true. It's really hard to imagine the Beatles with, it's it's impossible to imagine them with a different drummer. It's, it's part of the thing all that having been said, has there ever been a luckier man in human history than Ringo Starr? Yeah, no, I I agree. I I agree. I mean, would the Beatles have been as big with another drummer? Probably. But that four on the floor swing he had, man, it can't be underestimated. Really can't be. There's something to be said about band dynamics and chemistry. I know you don't want to hear it, but be coming from a band, you know, I, I don't think I've ever heard Guns N' Roses better than when Steve Adler's playing drums with them. I don't. And I know that our drummer's amazing and he's incredible. And, you yeah. know, you put Josh Fries in there, he's going to be amazing. But 
Some about Stephen Adler and the swing he has makes Guns N' Roses so great. That's just a little thing. So I agree with you. Yeah. But my, but when I talk about this, that drum song is certainly no bang on the drum all day, is it? I mean, no. why would you like have a drum heavy song if you're going to say I want to play on my drums all day? It's just very strange. Even in a Ringo like you know sort of quirky manner, it, it doesn't work in so many ways. Yeah, that that song fails on pretty much every conceivable. Yeah, I mean, he right. was associated with drumming, so in that sense, I guess it made a certain bit of sense. But uh, I guess John and Paul didn't help him on that one at all. Probably. I think he, I think he's a big boy now, and he did that one all by himself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, I always love to see what's going on in the metal universe. And um, Saxon released. I, I I'm not a big Saxon guy, but I am prepared to say that this is the definitive creative statement from Saxon. Here is the title track of Denim and Leather. There was not a single person in heavy metal parking lot that did not own a well-worn copy of Dead Man Leather from oh, Saxon. I mean, it, it was a, a rite of passage. But I got to <laughs> say, as a guy who loves that whole genre, yeah. Saxon never spoke. There's some of that early 80s UK denim and leather rock that never spoke to me. It was a little too, it, it, it wasn't fun. It was a little dark. You know, I, there's some bands like, whether it's a Raven or a Saxon, I, I, I'm not saying Ravens. They're a UK band, right? Raven was. I think so. Band. I think so. Yeah, they just they, there was just that one note, Saxon, Raven, and I'm gonna throw Anvil in there because they, sure. they're. But they just it just had this something that was missing in my metal from those bands. I don't know what it was. I like a couple songs from Anvil, and the documentary made me like the band a lot. But yeah, I don't know. Something was missing. The fun, the joy. You know, what was missing was the sexy. There wasn't a sexy dude in the band. Forgive me, but uh, I need my I need my hair metal like you know delivered by a sexy dude. Yeah, oddly sexually titillating. Yeah, I think we all do. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, elsewhere this month in uh, in 1981, Bow Wow Wow released their debut. The Knack put out what somebody called the most underrated album of all time, but I think it was the album that also got them dropped. They did not have another My Sharona in them, and so that was all she wrote. Quarter Flash have their moment with Harden My Heart. Bauhaus are getting started. Madness are still kicking around. And um, Hawkwind the venerable, durable, uh, the 11th studio album by space rock group Hawkwind. Lemmy's old band. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Ginger Baker had been in the band by this point. Ginger Baker was yeah. was was making, he was the easy lover of, uh, of rock bands of, of this era. You were nobody if Ginger Baker hadn't been in your band for a minute. You're right. I think he was, I think they were willing to uh, be supportive of his, burgeoning heroin habits so you know here's you go you got ginger baker in the band but there's a bit of a caveat to yeah it. what's yeah. that well we'll take him hey hey totally really quickly i know we're wrapping up yeah. you see any hip-hop you see any hip-hop coming down the pike in 81 i didn't I, i've gone through two uh, there's two lists that i use for this um above all else and no i maybe i'm wrong but not that i not that i saw and um and I also and I also didn't see anything all that significant from the I, I always enjoy the R and B stuff of this era and um the 
the Isley brothers are kind of stuck in the mud around here. Um, Gil Scott Heron made an album that I don't think was particularly well received. I, I, it, maybe, maybe, but not that I, not that I came across. Right. We don't know. It's, I think Grandmaster Blasts are coming. They're they're on their way. You know. Yeah. I think I think it was still considered a novelty after Rappers Delight, Sugar Hill Gang. I think they. Well, that was fun. Now, I don't think that that was going to be the biggest selling genre by the end of the eighties. You know. But it's no, coming. Absolutely, positively not. No, no, no. They thought that that was like the California raisins, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm flipping through uh mike love's got a record the isley brothers uh the stray cats i think made something that only came out in the uk or it may have been it may have been live um uh no odd right it's strange that it seems like the entire a couple of entire genres took the month off oh nico made a record i don't think one of her uh wow yeah, she died. What, what did she? I, I don't know when she died. I don't, get, I, I don't know if she died in '88 or '83. I'm not even sure. Yeah, well, she yeah. I think knows? she made it a little bit just because she had completely dropped off of the radar. I don't think people, uh, you know, realize that she kicked around a little bit longer. There's a pretty decent Nico movie that came out a couple of years ago. I forget the name of it. It's it's if if you're interested in Nico, it's worth watching. I love it. No, I, I'm into all. Who, who's in it? You know, is it just an independent? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's not. Yeah, there's. It's not. Um, Willem Dafoe. Not a, not, not a vanity project. Did not play Nico. Yeah, it's a little low budget thing. Hold on, I'll find the name of it. Um, uh, I'm just wondering the historical significance at all. You know, that's why I'd be interested in seeing it. Nico, 1988, is a 2017 biographical film co-production between Italy and Belgium, although shot in. Um, in English, so yeah, a very, very, very small movie, but you know. So by the title, did she die in '88? I think I think it's exactly right. This is this is the last year of her life. Yeah. Got got it. Got yeah. it. Well, I'll be checking that out. There you Something go. Do tonight, Kelly. Thank you, my friend. I'm happy to be of service. All right, thank you as always for your time. Um, boy, do we have a lot of things to talk about, and we'll get to all of them eventually. Yeah, I'm looking forward, and keep uh, you know keep hitting us on Twitter at Mark and Storm McGrath. Love hearing from you guys. I, I know we respond all the time, and. I know I went back and forth with someone about Barry Manilow and not having a hit after 81, <laughs> but we are passionate about our music and so are you. So it's always wonderful to hear from everybody. 